0: Please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10. We continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke. And you'll remember the last week we covered that passage from the beginning of chapter 10 in which Jesus sends out the 72 disciples, two by two. These 72 disciples are different from the 12, as in the 12 apostles, but they're basically given the same mission as the 12, to proclaim the message of the kingdom of God, that salvation for God's people was now here in the person of Jesus. And Jesus tells them up front that as they go out, they're going to get a mixed response. Some would, in response to that message, reject them. Some would, in response to that message, receive them, as indicated by the hospitality that they would show. But for those who would reject them, the 72 were to warn them of the serious consequences of what they were doing by symbolically shaking the dust off their feet. Because to reject the 72 was to reject Jesus and God the Father. That's verse 16. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. And that's where we pick it up today. Look at verses 17 through 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Our outline this morning is pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Point number one is the great joy of ministry. And point number two is the greater joy of salvation. So let's start with point number one, the great joy of ministry. Now last week's passage, so that's verses 1 through 16 of this chapter, like that text, if you look at it, it's almost entirely Jesus' words. If you've got a red-letter Bible, like that is all red the only action in that entire passage, the only narrative part of the passage is verse 1, where Jesus sends the 72 out. And the very next action that happens, the very next action verse in the chapter is down in verse 17, which tells us that 72 returned. So Luke basically skips everything in between, everything that happened on those trips. When I told anything about where the 72 went, or the nature of their interactions, or what they said, or the response of the people, or, or what miracles they performed. We're not given any of those details, and it's not because nothing of note happened. You now, judging from what the 72 say upon returning, it seems like a lot happened. But we see here, that luke 's emphasis is not so much on what the disciples do that 's going to be the emphasis for his second volume. Right? The book of Acts is full of details about what the disciples do, but here in this gospel, and particularly in this section of this gospel, the focus is entirely on jesus 's teaching so luke 's focus here and thus where our focus, as his readers, should be, it's not so much on the disciples' experience, but on how Jesus uses the disciples' experience to teach them a really important lesson about the kingdom of God. And so what is the disciples' experience? Well, look at what they say in verse 17. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, if you look up at verse 9 you might remember that they were only told about Jesus commissioning them to heal the sick, right, to perform healing miracles. But apparently, he's also given them the ability to cast out demons. And that's not all that surprising, given that in chapter 9, verse 1, he gave the 12 authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And so the 72 similarly are given the ability to cast out demons from the demon-possessed. A quick side note here, in case you weren't here when we talked about this in Luke chapter 9, uh, this authority and power over the demonic realm was given to them for their ministry, for their mission. It's not for us here today. If you want to hear more about that, uh, let me refer you to the sermon from Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. But just ending that side note, now coming back to our text... The 72 are given that authority, that ability to cast out demons, and so that's exactly what they do on their trip. But look at how they word it. Look at how they describe it. They don't just say, the demons are subject to us. They say, the demons are subject to us in your name. Like They recognize that it's not their abilities and their powers and their strength that's allowing them to do this. No, it's entirely because of the authority and the power of Jesus working through them. The same Jesus who over and over and over in this gospel has demonstrated his authority and his power over the demonic realm. Well, that same Jesus is now giving that authority and power to the 72. So as they return from their little mission trip here, that's basically all these guys can talk about. Did they do other miracles? Yeah, Jesus told them to heal the sick. And so we can assume that they did healing miracles. Uh, Did they meet hostility? Yeah, Jesus told them that they were going to be rejected. And so we can assume that they were rejected. But it's not the other miracles that they did or even the hostility that they faced that's on the minds of the 72 as they return. Like all that stuff basically becomes a footnote in their conversation They're just amazed that Jesus enabled them to drive out demons in his name. Which leads to Jesus' response. Look at verse 18. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, what is that referring to? I would say there's two major views here. Uh, One view is that that is referring to Satan's original fall. Satan was originally created by God as an angelic being, created to worship and serve him. But because of his pride and his desire to put himself above God, his rebellion against God, well, he's cast down. Look at Isaiah 14. It's in a a larger passage about the king of Babylon, but given the scope and the magnitude of what's mentioned here, that leads many to believe that this is about more than just the human king of Babylon. Uh, this is about Satan himself. Starting in verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Now look particularly at verse 12 how you are fallen from heaven, and now compare that language to Luke chapter 10, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now you see the similarities in language. And so one view is that Jesus is talking about the original fall of Satan, and that's possible. I mean, Jesus Remember, he's very God of very God. And so even though he was born as a human in his incarnation, he has no beginning. And so certainly he would have been there and seen Satan's original fall. But it's not entirely clear why Jesus would bring that up here. Maybe he's alluding to Satan's pride as the cause of his fall, And so this is like a veiled rebuke to the disciples because Jesus senses their pride in having the demons be subject to them. And so Jesus is warning them here, lest they become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. That's possible. But the issue, when you consider the passage as a whole, the issue doesn't seem to be one of pride as much as one of misplaced joy. And so another way to understand I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven is that Jesus is describing what he saw while the 72 are going out, proclaiming the kingdom of God, performing miracles, healing the sick, and casting out demons. Like as you all were doing that, I was watching Satan's kingdom fall apart. I was watching Satan suffer many defeats. As those whom he had taken captive, slaves that were under his dominion were being freed left and right. Like as those former captives heard and believed the gospel, I was watching as sinners were being transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God, going from being children of the devil to being children of God. I was watching Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now the death blow, the ultimate crushing of the serpent's head, the ultimate binding of the strong man, the ultimate plundering of his goods, that would all happen at the cross where Jesus would disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. That would happen through Jesus' death and his resurrection. But we see previews of that, pictures foreshadowing that. The down payments on the ultimate defeat of Satan throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, even in the 72 displaying power and authority over the demonic realm. The 72 having the demons be subject to them in Jesus' name. Now, if we understand Jesus' words in that way, which I think makes better sense of the context— then he's not so much rebuking the 72 for their pride, but he's acknowledging that what they just did really was an awesome thing, a remarkable thing. Because it's more than just a, a cool party trick. It has even bigger implications than just saving an individual person from a miserable life of demon possession. Like, bigger picture? We're talking cosmic level implications here? They're fighting in a spiritual war, and by the power and authority of Jesus, like as his representatives, as his delegates, they're winning great victories for the kingdom of God. Like what you all just did, that was amazing. I was watching Satan fall like lightning from heaven, even as you were doing those things. And Jesus continues in verse 19, by telling them that this wasn't just a one-time thing, that they're going to continue in this great work against God's adversaries. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. That's not what we would expect Jesus to say if he were rebuking them for their pride because he's basically urging them to continue doing what they've been doing. Keep delivering blows to the kingdom of darkness. I've given you the authority to do it, and I'm going to keep you safe while you're doing it. Just to be clear on a possible point of confusion, when Jesus references the serpents and scorpions, uh, he is not speaking literally. Uh, Some churches will use this verse as a justification for things like snake handling. Uh, They understand Jesus' statement here to be a a literal authority that his people have over uh, snakes and scorpions. Uh, But no, he's not talking about literal snakes. Uh, That's why we took snake handling out of our services like two years ago. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Uh, But think about it. This entire chapter has been about spiritual battles. Uh, This entire chapter has been about going against spiritual enemies. The immediate context is driving out demons, right? Spiritual beings. But now all of a sudden in verse 19, Jesus is saying, but listen, if you get stung by a scorpion, you'll be okay because you're going to have authority over them. I'm sure it's nice to have authority over arthropods, but in the context of spiritual battles, it's even better to have authority over spiritual beings, the demonic realm. And so scorpions and serpents, they are just representing, look at the end of the verse, the second half of the verse, spiritual enemies. I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, the serpents and scorpions. What Paul would later call the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And if you need further proof of that, consider the book of Acts. The disciples don't seem all that concerned with poisonous wildlife, but they do, on many occasions, drive out unclean spirits. Now, if we understand serpents and scorpions as a spiritual metaphor, well, then we see that the phrase at the end of verse 19, that promise that nothing shall hurt you, well, that's not referring to physical invincibility. Just ask faithful disciples like Stephen and James how that whole physical invincibility thing worked out for them. Now again, the context is spiritual warfare, spiritual battles. And so nothing shall hurt you is a promise to the 72 that even as they engage with the demonic, even as they take on the spiritual forces of darkness that are really much stronger than they are, that Jesus will protect them and keep them safe. Or as the Apostle John would put it, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So let's put this all together. The 72 come back with great joy. They are rejoicing that even the demons are subject to them in his name. Jesus acknowledges that they did just some wonderful and great things. As you were casting out demons, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Like big picture, you are participating in the downfall of Satan. And not only does Jesus acknowledge their great joy in their ministry, he also assures them that there is gonna be more of that joy to come because it's not just a one-time thing. I have given you authority over the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So point number one, is the great joy of ministry. Now, if our passage ended there, well, we might conclude that that's the main point of this text, that ministry for Jesus' sake comes with great joy. And that's true, but of course our passage doesn't end there. Jesus' teaching on this matter doesn't end there, because even as he affirms them in their great joy— he's going to point them to something even greater. Which brings us to point number two, the greater joy of salvation. Verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Nevertheless, it's a word that, we don't really use that often, but, but it's a word that signals a contrast. Right? That even though it is a legitimate source of joy that the spirits are subject to you, even though there is a great joy to ministry, and nevertheless, there's an even greater and more important source of joy, that your names are written in heaven. Your names are written in heaven That's just another way to say that you're saved, that you've been forgiven of your sins, that you have eternal life. Uh, There's references throughout the Bible to the names of God's people being written in a figurative book. And that metaphor is drawn from the fact that towns and cities back then would have a role or a public register of its citizens. And so if you're from such and such a town, then your name would be written somewhere in their books. But this, of course, is more than just citizenship in some first-century Middle Eastern town. This is talking about their citizenship in heaven, where God has prepared for them a city. And the Bible repeatedly refers to these names being written, like in Revelation 13, before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. These names were written before the foundation of the world. In other words, before any person was born and had done anything either good or bad, the sovereign God has written the names of his people in this book. The names of all he would draw to himself in salvation. So brothers and sisters, let's just Pause and think about that for a moment. It's not because you did enough good deeds and God sees that and then He says, Oh, time to write His name down in the book. It's not even because God sees you place your trust in Jesus and then in response He says, Okay, time to write her name in the book. Now, if you're a Christian, If you believe the gospel, if you trust in Jesus, that's because God wrote your name in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. It's exactly what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. All of God's people have been chosen in Christ, had their names written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. So if you're a Christian, I mean, just think about that. From before Genesis chapter 1, God had his plan to save you. He brought that plan about by sending his son to die for your sin. He granted you faith and repentance. And he is continuing even to this day, to bring about your ultimate glorification by preserving you. And he has promised to bring to completion the good work that he's begun in you. That is a cause to rejoice. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now You might be sitting here today you're not a Christian, you may be wondering, how do I know if my name is in that book? Well, the way you know if your name is in that book is you repent and believe. If you would come to the end of yourself today, realizing that you are not good enough for heaven, realizing that you've sinned against the holy God, realizing that you deserve eternal judgment because of your sin, but believing that Jesus came to die for sinners like you, that he came to take upon himself all the sins of all of his people and suffer the wrath of God in their place, and then three days later rise again to prove that payment for sin has been accepted, If you would truly trust that work of Jesus alone for your salvation, well, then the Bible is clear. Your name has been written in the book of life. The illustration is given of a doorway. On one side of the doorway, above the door, are written the words, come to me. And on the other side of the doorway, written on that same doorway, but you can only see it once you've gone through, are the words chosen from before the foundation of the world. So, dear friend, look to Christ. Look to Christ, because for those of you who do, you will find that your names were written in the book of life all along, from before the foundation of the world. And again, that that is the cause to rejoice. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And Jesus' point here, his point here is that that joy, the joy of salvation, that is the greatest joy that you can possibly have. It's what Paul calls a surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Like a worth A joy that surpasses everything else in this life. Is there joy in ministry, in laboring for the kingdom of God? Yes, of course. Is there joy in fulfilling the task that God has set out for you? Yes, of course. Is there joy in the case of the 72 in having demons be subject to them? In in seeing, in part, The fall of the kingdom of darkness. Yes, of course, but salvation, eternal life, having your name written in heaven that's the joy that makes everything else, every other joy in life, pale in comparison. Why is that the case? Well, for one, it's a a lasting joy consider that any joy of ministry in this life, and for that matter, any joy that you might get from anything that you do in this life, is necessarily temporary. Like, it'll come and it'll go with the ups and downs of life. Even the most permanent joys of this world are only as lasting as our lives are. But to have your name written in heaven eternal life, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, there's a joy that will last literally forever. And so it's a lasting joy, but also consider that it's a sure joy. Consider that the joy of ministry, the joy of ministry can be quite deceptive because the Bible is clear that it's entirely possible for us to do great things for Jesus, even to cast out demons in his name like these 72 did, yet still be on the road to eternal condemnation in hell. And so such joy is not necessarily indicative of salvation. In that sense, it is not a sure joy. Exhibit A, Consider Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, one who surely performed many signs in Jesus' name. But Judas is not going to be alone. You're familiar with Matthew chapter 7. And not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. It's not just Judas. It's many who did great works in Jesus' name. Many who experienced great joys of ministry. They will be cast out As workers of lawlessness. It is not a sure joy, but in contrast, having your name written in heaven, well friends, that's as sure as it gets, because that's secured by the precious blood of Christ. Now, none of that is to say that ministry is therefore worthless. Like Jesus doesn't say here, stop casting out demons and just rejoice in your salvation. No, because the work of ministry is the outflow of the joy of salvation. But the danger of that which the 72 had to guard against and that which we must guard against is that we can so easily get that backwards. Where we begin to place our hope in the fruit of our joy rather than the root of our joy. And point number two, the greater joy of salvation. Friends, do we believe this? Do we truly believe that our salvation, the fact that our names are written in heaven, that that's a greater joy, a more lasting joy, a more sure joy than even the greatest of our ministry accomplishments? Do we believe that there's literally nothing that we can do in this life that will give us greater joy than the joy that we already have because of our salvation? And do we believe that regardless of what happens in this life, no matter what trials this life may bring, no matter how miserably our ministries might flop, that we have an ultimate joy that cannot be shaken because it's been secured for us by Christ. Point number two, the greater joy of salvation. Let me leave you now with two takeaways from this passage. Takeaway number one, beware the hidden danger The subtle danger of spiritual success. Beware the hidden danger of spiritual success. By spiritual success, well, this passage is primarily referring to success in ministry. Specifically with the 72, it's their remarkable success that they've had in casting out demons. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Well, that's not for us, but maybe for us, it's success in evangelism. Like someone comes to faith because we have shared the gospel with them. Or maybe we taught a Bible study that's really well received. Or maybe whatever ministry we've been put in charge of or tasked with has just been this smashing success. We can include in this, though, other forms of spiritual success. Maybe you've just been killing it with your personal devotions. Maybe you've seen great growth in personal holiness, like God has really allowed you to see obedience with regards to a sin that you've been struggling with for a long time. Or maybe you've seen great strides in your marriage, great strides in your parenting. Well, if you've seen that kind of spiritual success, praise God. Those are all awesome, wonderful things. But they come with certain dangers. The obvious one is pride. Like it's so easy for us in our sinful pride to begin to elevate ourselves because of those successes, to think that I myself am something. Forgetting that all that we have, we have received by God's grace. But perhaps the more subtle danger, the one that this passage draws our attention to, the one that I want to draw your attention to right now, the more subtle danger is that of misplaced joy. Where even as we humbly give the glory to God, it's what the 72 do. The demons are subject to us in your name. They're giving glory to Jesus. But we can be so consumed with the great things that God is doing through us that we comparatively forget the great things that God has done for us. And so our ministry, like that which we do for God, that becomes elevated above the gospel. That which God has done for us. And maybe that goes back to a works mentality in us that's stronger than we'd be willing to admit. Because our ministries, success in our ministries, that can make us appear competent and smart and capable and able. But the gospel tells us that we're wretched sinners incapable of any good. And so we'd rather find our identity and our joy in the things that we've done in our competence and in our ability rather than what Christ has done for us in our wretchedness and our inability. Hopefully you can see how spiritually disastrous that kind of thinking can be. Takeaway number one, beware the danger, the hidden danger of spiritual success. But how might we diagnose that in our hearts? How might we evaluate the presence of this danger in our hearts? Well, what happens when your ministry isn't doing too hot? When your evangelism efforts are rejected and your Bible study just didn't go as smoothly as you would have liked? Nothing seems to go right in that project, that church that I've been tasked with. When that source dries up, that source of joy dries up, is there still a deeper, more abiding, unshakable, unchanging joy in the gospel that your name is written in heaven? Or, what happens when you can't do ministry like You did before. You just can't do the things you once did. The day's gonna come, and for some of you has already come, when you're just not gonna be able to do ministry like you could when you were younger. Your body gets weak, your mind is just not what it once was, and you just can't do things for the Lord like you once did. Well, again, when that source of joy dries up, is there still a deeper, more abiding, unshakable, unchangeable joy in the gospel that your name is written in heaven? The story is told of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Some of you will be familiar with him as one of the great preachers of the 20th century, he is dying of cancer. Naturally, that severely limits him in terms of his ministry. Like, here's a guy who's preached thousands of sermons, written dozens of books. He's got this massive worldwide influence. And someone asks him how he's dealing with not being able to do all of that anymore. And his response was Luke ten twenty? Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And friends, given how easily we can misplace our joy, this is something that we ought to regularly be checking in with ourselves on. Like, what is my greater joy? Is it that I led such and such Bible study and everybody loved it? Or is it that my name is written in heaven? Is it that I've discipled such and such people and that they now know their Bibles? Or is it that my name is written in heaven? Is it, 72, is it that the demons are subject to you? Or that your name is written in heaven? Takeaway number one, beware the hidden danger of spiritual success. The second takeaway number two, rejoice in your salvation. Jesus tells his disciples, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice. That is an imperative. That is a command. Maybe we're so used to thinking of joy as just a mere emotion that we can forget that the Bible often commands us to rejoice. Rejoice. Now, that does not mean that ooh, we just got to try to muster up some kind of emotion inside of us. Or just fake a smile until we feel some joy or anything like that. No, joy in the Bible is never an emotion divorced from reality. And that is, biblical joy is always rooted in the substance of truth. And so the way that we practically obey this command to rejoice is by fixing our minds and our hearts on the substance of truth behind that joy. And here, that substance of truth is that if you're a believer, your name is written in heaven. And so, brothers and sisters, rejoice, imperative, command, rejoice, in your salvation by fixing your minds on the gospel. Fix your minds on the fact that you are a wretched sinner who not only sinned against the Holy God but really wanted nothing to do with him. You were spiritually dead. But in his great love for you, while you were still a sinner, he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. And the same Jesus rose again from the dead. Declaring victory over sin and Satan and death, also that we, who were headed to an eternity in hell, might instead live with him forever as his children. That is, our names are written in heaven. And so we obey this command to rejoice by fixing our minds on that truth. And God in his kindness has given us so many means that we might fix our minds on that truth. He's given us his word that we might read it to fix our minds on that truth that we might rejoice in our salvation. He's given us one another, the saints of the church, that we might together fix our minds on that truth that we might rejoice in our salvation. He's given us voices and songs and instruments that we might sing his praises individually and corporately to fix our minds on that truth that we might rejoice in our salvation. So takeaway number two, rejoice. Rejoice in your salvation. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray. Father, indeed, there is no greater joy that your children can have than to know that you in the gospel have redeemed us, have saved us, made us your children, have written our names in heaven. So Father, we pray that we who are your people would have just the right prioritization of our joy, that we would seek our ultimate and lasting and sure joy in Christ alone. Father, we pray for any in this room who do not know you. Pray that today would be the day of salvation in which they look to Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.